the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the French Open over anxiety and the media. And then we're joined by Shelby Abbott uh, to discuss his book, Doubtless, Because Faith is Hard. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You are glad that you're joining us. Aubrey, it is Friday. As I told you, Friday. As I told you at the end of yesterday's show, it is free donut day at Dunkin' Donuts. That uh, If we did a top five list of holidays, it's like Christmas. It's Thanksgiving. <laughs> Somewhere in that top five list is going to be free donut day how donut day. excited are you today so i'm gonna be honest i didn't know free donut day like was a thing in the You're world welcome. so you've kind of changed my life yeah so i'm gonna take my kids we're gonna get some free donuts you have extra hope for your life now like here's there's the gospel and then there's the <laughs> gospel and free donuts and so right uh, exactly. yes i it might i believe it requires the purchase of a beverage i'm not exactly sure about that but go get your oh, donuts okay today. okay you're going to get your iced tea anyway, so might as well get a free donut with that I think what you mean tea. by that is I'm going to get another iced tea today. <laughs> so, yes, free donut day is right up there with what will sneak up to you. Uh, here, let me remind you of a couple others. Uh, July okay. 11th, 7-Eleven is always free Slurpee day. My kids and I take advantage of that. Literally the only day of the year we get Slurpees. Uh, that is Brian. free Slurpee Day. And then I don't know when okay. it is, but keep your eyes open for free Cone Day at Dairy Queen. That is always once a year as what? well. What? Yeah. You, I, how do you know about all these free food item days? So two reasons. One, I love dessert. And, and two, I almost said B again. <laughs> two, I'm cheap. And so dessert added to oh, free. Oh, fair. Okay. I'm in. I am in it's on your that. heaven. And so, uh, <laughs> yes, those are the days to keep in your calendar. But yes, okay. 7-Eleven, put, put that in, in your mind because that's free Slurpee day. Literally, my kids and I don't have a Slurpee ever. But on free on free uh, Slurpee day, I'm like, we're going to 7-Eleven. Let's go. Like the first one's there. <laughs> we're doing this. And then there's a line. And I'm like, we're waiting for this. And, uh, that is awesome. It is good. So we're glad that you're joining us on this Friday. Looking forward to a good hot weekend this weekend coming up. Uh, there was an interesting story this week that we haven't talked about yet. It's of Naomi Osaka. Naomi Osaka oh. is uh, probably, you know, Serena Williams is the most well-known tennis player, but Naomi Osaka is probably the best female tennis player right now. And I believe last year she made the most amount of money in endorsements oh, and wow. purses, like uh, winnings of any okay. uh, of any player. Well, Naomi Osaka had something very interesting going on. This week is the beginning. The French Open has begun. 
So it's one of the four tennis majors. And Naomi Osaka said she is not going to do any of the press conferences. And she cited anxiety over media interviews. And the French Mm -hmm. Open kind of said, no, you have to. This is part of the gig. It's part of the job. And she then went on to, they were going to fine her. There was even talk that she could be removed from the tournament. Like it was kind of building. Mm. What ended up happening is that Naomi Osaka over... um, uh, Instagram, I believe, put out a long message withdrawing from the French Open. And wow. this was a huge deal, not only because of why she uh, got out, because she cited anxiety. She excited long bouts of depression since the U.S. Open mm-hmm. in 2018, that she has a hard time coping with the media, all this kind of stuff. Uh, wow. Not only that, but this is like the equivalent right now of, you know, uh, LeBron James being like, hey, because I don't want to do I'm media, I'm not yeah. going to play in the playoffs right now. Like, it's right, kind of right. she's that big a deal. You might remember her at the U.S. Open this year. She was one of the people who wore a different mask. Uh, so a covid mask with a different name of somebody, an African-American person who had died. Uh, wow. and, and like trying to raise awareness. That's Naomi Osaka. Many people okay. probably yep. know yep. of her. And so this idea of anxiety and depression is kind of bubbling forward now in a big conversation. I don't want to have the conversation as this way. There's a, there is a sports media debate going on like, hey, it's part of what she's supposed to do, right? Like it's it would be like you going, hey, I'm a pastor, but I don't like being in front of people is kind of some people's argument. Like it, it goes with the yeah. job. On the other hand, a lot of her uh, tennis compatriots, the people who play, are going, hey, good for her. We want her to be healthy. Really, her job is to play tennis, not to do these interviews. She she got in this to be an athlete, not to be a celebrity or whatever. There's other ways to go about this. But but I I want to tackle it. So that's important. But I want to tackle this from a different thing. And I would like you to kind of speak to this. There's other people who are going, Naomi Osaka made tens of millions of dollars last year. She is one of the most famous uh, female athletes in the world right now. She Mm. is a major champion. She is at the pinnacle of her career. And here's how that thought process goes that I'd like you to speak to. What does she have to be anxious or depressed about right now? Wow. She's got the money, the fame. She's at the pinnacle of her career. She's got everything most of us dream of. Yeah. What does she have any reason to have any issues for? Aubrey, how would you answer somebody who might be thinking that about her or other famous people, people who've reached the pinnacle and but are having anxiety or depressive issues? I mean, it certainly is telling like we know this from God's mouth himself, that that money, that um, fame, that being at the height of whatever it is you're pursuing does not heal you does not save you does not um make you invincible and i i think two things one it's a good word for all of us to really step back and remember Mm -hmm. that ultimately the only one who can bring us healing and hope is jesus period Mm -hmm. and it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you know Obviously, lots of folks who follow Jesus still deal with anxiety and depression, but ultimately, nothing is going to satisfy you. I mean, she's got everything, like you said, and that's not satisfying her soul. You know, at the end of the day, we need an answer for our soul satisfaction, and that's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's good. And then I think the other thing is, I guess the reverse of that, like I just kind of commented on, is that 
so many of us are dealing with anxiety and depression, especially coming out of the pandemic, especially with social media being a buzz. Like it, it just seems like, and not just seems like we actually know scientifically that these uh, mental health crises are growing and increasing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think just to keep normalizing it, not shame yourself if you're struggling. Hey, I mean, even, you know, Naomi Osaka struggling. So you, right, you're struggling that's right. too. That's okay. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to a professional. Get the help you need because you are worthy of care. I actually appreciate that she chose her self-care. And I'm sure this was a hard decision to make. So what, what's your take on it, Brian? Yeah, I think what people, especially Christ followers, need to know, if you think that money, prestige, reaching the pinnacle saves you from this kind of stuff, I just point you back to the Bible, right? We've That's got it. Elijah. We've got yep. David. We've got Solomon. Read Song of Solomon. Read Ecclesiastes, I should say, and go... Mm. Oh, this is like the richest, most powerful person ever going like, what's it all? Life what's is the meaningless. What's yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think we just have to go. We don't even have to go to things outside of scripture. We just can go back to scripture and go see what I mean. And uh, I, I think that, like you said, it's the old Jim Carrey quote, the old author, uh, the old author, the old actor, uh, when he said, I wish everybody would make all the money they could and realize all their dreams to see that it doesn't satisfy, to see mm. that there's more to life. And yeah. I think that's what it comes back to. So fascinating story. It's a little more complex. So you could go back and read about it. Go Google Naomi Osaka uh, and you'll learn some more about that. Well, coming up next, Shelby Abbott. He's an author, campus minister and conference speaker on staff with Family Life. That's a ministry of crew. He's going to join us. We're going to talk to him about his book, Doubtless, because faith is hard, but also a recent Gospel Coalition article that he authored called Six Principles for Sharing Your Testimony. Shelby's going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined on the phone by uh, Shelby Abbott. Shelby is an author, campus minister, and speaker on staff with Family Life. Uh, it's a ministry of crew. Uh, also the author of a book we're excited to talk to him about called Doubtless, Because Faith is Hard. Shelby, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm actually calling from a summer mission that I run each year with uh, a group of college students. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk about ministry in the context of ministry. Oh, that's outstanding. I want to hear more about that when we get a chance. Hey, Shelby, before we dive into your book, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience just so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Um, I came on staff with, I became Christian in college at Virginia Tech through the Ministry of Crew, and I came on staff right after I graduated. Uh, worked with the campus ministry for about 20 years or so. Worked at James Madison University in Virginia, and I've been doing a bunch of different things with the campus ministry, including stand-up comedy for four years, which was brutal and difficult and life-altering. Uh, uh, but that and uh, more recently moved to our publishing division in Crew Press, and then just recently, within the last year, switched over to Family Life, which is our family ministry under the umbrella of Crew, working in content creation. And I'm actually going to be hopping on doing uh, Family Life Today, which is a radio program, and uh, starting my own radio show with Family Life going on the air in January. So lots of new things coming up for me. 
How fun. Welcome to the world of radio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shelby, this topic of doubt is so important. Again, the title of your book is Doubtless Because Faith is Hard. Can you talk to us a little bit about the place of doubt in our faith journey? Yes. One of the things that uh, we as Christians have a tendency to believe is that doubt is the same thing as unbelief, which is not. And as a result of our believing that, we have a tendency to shun doubt or just tell people to stop it, or we shy away from it or say, don't ask those kind of questions, just believe, or we sweep things under the rug, which is an error on our part. When you look at the scriptures, it's very clear that from the Old Testament to the New, God's people wrestle with doubt on a pretty consistent basis, and God is patient with them in the process. And so my kind of running theory in the book is that doubt is one of those things that if we deal with it in a healthy, godly way, if we wrestle with it well, it can actually strengthen our faith as opposed to diminish it. And so it can be a welcome guest in our home, but once it comes in, it's it's intended to make us stronger and then leave. So that's a totally different perspective on doubt and how to approach it. And Shelby, what does it look like? How would you tell people to wrestle with doubt in a in a positive way? What does that even look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, one of the things that people, when they have a tendency to doubt, they usually keep it to themselves. They they have a question or some sort of nagging thing that they have about scripture or the resurrection or something like that. And they usually just kind of like uh, wrestle with it on their own in isolation. And as a, as a result, they feel shame or they don't know how to answer the question. And they kind of slowly back away from Christianity, reading their Bible, spending time in prayer, certainly going to church, maybe even if they're involved in a ministry, they just kind of back away from Christian fellowship. And so my like exhortation to people is to deal with it in a healthy way, to move into the doubt, to uh, lean into it in a way that helps to strengthen your faith, but not back away from the fellowship. Ask hard questions, be vulnerable about these things, and live life in the context where people are free to ask these kind of questions and um, address them and wrestle with them together in the context of community all while going after the answers. Because if you seek the answers, they are out there. A lot of people think that there's no good answer to the question that they're asking, but their question has been asked for 2,000 years. And so great answers, good answers exist out there. And so to lean into them, go find them in the context of healthy Christian community. Oh, that's such a good word, Shelby. So you're obviously a campus pastor. Brian and I are both pastors. How can the church or how can Christian organizations get better at creating safe spaces for people to doubt? I think that, number one, it's, it needs to be talked about from up front. So in, at the pulpit or, or in the larger meeting or wherever it may be, doubt is not one of those things that should be shunned. Um, I think there's a, there's a healthy understanding of what it is. Like I said, it's not unbelief. They're not, they're not the same thing. Uh, but at the same time, doubt should not be celebrated or kind of exalted. And I have a, a feeling that our, our culture has a tendency to do that too, which has led to a lot of more focusing on the questions than landing on the answers with, where we're getting all these spiritual deconstruction stories and people walking away from the faith. So we, we got to be careful about that. But like I said before, like creating an environment where we're, we're talking about things, we're, we're giving people the room to wrestle with these things and be intentional about asking those questions. One quote I ran across as I was doing research for the book, a pastor said, 
for example, the, the scriptures, he was talking specifically about the Psalms, give us permission to beat on God's chest. And I just felt like that was a very visceral, healthy way to look at stuff because God is big enough to handle our questions. It's often the Christian community is not big enough, so to speak, to handle our questions or, or, or uh, brave or courageous enough to do that. So fostering an environment where people can ask questions, but not just constantly ask questions, find some healthy orthodox answers to kind of bite down on, chew and swallow, and then move on from your doubts. Yeah. And Shelby, as we said, you work with college kids and kind of that younger generation. Are you seeing uh, doubt um, increasing in that generation? And if you are, what do you feel like is driving it? I definitely am seeing that. Um, I'm definitely seeing kind of like the younger generation values, you know, the buzzword of authenticity. They really do value being open and honest about stuff. And consequently, they feel a lot more freedom to be able to voice their doubts, which to a degree is healthy. But at the same time, they're also searching for answers in ways that, that are that are unhealthy. And so we need to steer them in the in the proper direction so that they're finding good uh, quality answers instead of answers that are away from scripture, away from the truth of the, the resurrected Jesus. And so I think that because of the way the world is today and a, a lot of this chaos and really just yelling at each other through uh, social media and through the internet, there's not a lot of listening going on. And so I don't think younger people really know how to listen well now because it hasn't been modeled for them really, really well. And that's really a, a older generation uh, thing as opposed to their fault. I'd say that's our fault. And so I think that um, one of the things that, that we can do is to teach them how to listen well and how to research and go after like answers that might take a little bit of a longer time to get to as opposed to just searching for the quick fix of social media, getting something very, very fast through the internet. Often good answers take time to find, uh, teaching them to be patient. Yeah. Good answers take time to find. That's really good. That's good. Shelby Abbott is an author, campus minister, and conference speaker on staff with Family Life, which is a ministry of crew. He's also the author of a book we've been talking about. It came out uh, back in August of 2020. This book is called Doubtless Because Faith is Hard. Super helpful discussion about this idea of doubt. And, and Shelby, you also just recently, just, you know, in the last couple of days, wrote a article at the Gospel Coalition called Six Principles for Sharing Your Testimony. Uh, and before we get into some of those principles, I, I wonder, uh, why do you think it's difficult for us to even, I, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time and it's always hard to know how do I share my story? How do I share my testimony? Why do you think that is the case? Why do you think it's difficult for us to share our stories? I think it, there's an element of vulnerability that's there. Um, I think that it's one of those things where people might think, well, my story is boring, therefore people won't want to really hear it. Uh, many, uh, many times I've talked to people who have been raised in an environment where they've gone to church their whole life and they don't remember a specific time where they haven't believed in God or, or, or been in a relationship with God. So they think, well, there's nothing like miraculous about my story or, or fascinating about my story, therefore... I'm kind of hesitant to talk about it, but the truth is, is when we have a proper perspective about our story, that it's really not about us. It's about the, the miraculous work that Jesus has done in order to save us from sin. You can flip that perspective. And once you do, every testimony of someone coming to Jesus is a fascinating story because it's a, it's a miracle where we have been rescued by his grace. And I think we just need to shift perspective and, and have a proper perspective on what 
really our, our testimony actually is as opposed to what it's not. That's great, Shelby. And in your article for the Gospel Coalition, you did give people really six principles or like very simple practical handholds for sharing their testimony. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, and and that's really what I wanted to do, make it simple. And this is one of the, the great things that Crew has done for me over time is just helped me to practically figure out um, what to do on how to share uh, your, your testimony, your story. And so the six principles are very, very practical. One is keep it short. Don't go longer than three minutes, whether you're giving it one-on-one or even in a group. Number two is have a before, how, and after, which is really just set a timeline for your story so that people can track with you easy uh, what your life was like before Jesus, how you came to Christ, and then what your life has been like since. Number three is have a theme uh, so that people can walk away with kind of one main idea uh, of what your story is about. From, for example, my story is about performance, and that, and when we boil it down to one, people can remember it a lot easier. Fourth, and most importantly, in my opinion, is clearly present the gospel. I think this is one of the things that people forget to do all the time, and what I like to tell them is, uh, this is the diamond in the engagement ring. So don't forget the diamond because it's the most important part. So walk someone through what the, the gospel actually is, that we are rescued as sinners by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for him di- by him dying on, on, on the cross for our sins, and we need to say yes to him. Uh, fifth is avoid Christianese, which is that kind of christian language that we use all the time in church circles that we assume other people understand, but they don't. So we don't want people to walk away confused. And six, and finally, is just practice it. Practice to the point that you know it by heart. You have it in your memory. So anytime you feel like the conversation is relevant with any of your non-believing friends or someone asks you about your life, you can just uh, say it without even thinking about it. So yeah, it's pretty simple. Yeah, those are good tips. Appreciate those, Shelby. You said your your story has to do kind of with performance. I, I'm curious just to know what you mean by that. Could you kind of share a little bit of your story with us? Yes, I, I was the good kid in my family. I was always the one who wanted to please my parents, please my teachers, uh, please my coaches, never do anything wrong. If I did do something wrong, I usually got busted the first time I did something wrong. So I never got away with anything and never felt like any of the rebelling. So it was one of those things where I, I just needed it. And, you know, it, to gain acceptance, approval, love, or whatever, I would perform, therefore people would give me acceptance. And so that, that got kind of burned into, hardwired into my, my psyche, my, my life, my spiritual beliefs. Therefore, when I, when I really related to God, I thought I needed to put in the work to perform in order for God to accept me. So I need to be a good kid, follow the rules. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. I need to share my faith. I need to do all the right things in order for God to like me. And the gospel is exactly the opposite of that. I cannot buy God's favor through my performance. He gives it, he gives me my right standing with him by his grace alone. And so it took me a while to learn that and understand that, but that, that kind of theme of performance is woven its way into the fabric of my life from beginning all the way up through now, which is still a struggle for me. But I need to remind myself that the gospel is something for free. It's not something that can be earned. Shelby, that's so encouraging. I know for many of the folks listening and just, you know, thinking about our listeners, any of them that are in their car right now or sitting at home listening to the podcast and maybe they're struggling with doubt or maybe something you just said really resonated with them. Man, I have been working really hard to try to 
earn God's approval and affection, but it's making me crazy. Do you have some just type of pastoral word of encouragement for those listeners? Yeah, similar to what we were talking about in the first uh, segment is that doubt is is a normal part of the Christian life. It, it can come in, if you think about it, as kind of like a house guest. A house guest comes over to your to your house for the weekend. They're sleeping on the couch. They're putting dishes in the sink. They're disrupting your life. But then on Sunday, they're meant to pack up their stuff and leave. And a lot of times people welcome doubt into their life, and then they let doubt kind of set up and pitch a tent in their living room and never really leave. And it, and it bogs down their life, and it messes things up. And so he's meant to come in, stay for a little while, make us stronger, and then move on, pack up his stuff and leave. And so I feel like if we recognize that it's a normal part of the Christian life can make us stronger, that would be great. Because the, the lessons that I've learned, the areas where I've grown the most have been the areas where I've doubted. And God has used those in order to make me stronger. And then, like we're talking about right now, be able to speak into other people's lives and help them, encourage them, help them to grow. By helping them to know they're, they're not a, they're not like abnormal. They're not a freak for doubting. It's, it's a normal part of the Christian life. Allow it to make you stronger. That's good. Shelby Abbott, again, is the author of a book called Doubtless Because Faith is Hard. He's also campus minister and a conference speaker with Family Life, which is a ministry of crew. Uh, Shelby, we're super thankful for you coming on. Before we let you go, uh, where can people find you online, uh, social media? Where can people get connected with you? Through the portal of my website, which is just my name, Shelby Abbott, A-B-B-O-T-T dot com. And I blog there. You can see where, what books I've written and stuff like that and find my social media. Awesome. Again, that book is called Doubtless Because Faith is Hard. You can also find Shelby's most recent article, The Gospel Coalition, Six Principles for Sharing Your Testimony. Shelby, it's great to meet you, man. We'll let you get back to the, uh, your ministry and get back to work. Thanks for taking the time and joining us today. Thanks for talking with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's absolutely our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. We can see the weekend. Yes, finally. I can can almost touch it. It is right out there in front of me. I got more baseball tournaments to go to. You're watching movies and eating cake or whatever it is that you do. Yep. (laughs) That's basically uh, it. Basically, we've learned each other's lives here. Yep. We live thrilling lives. Wow, we really do. Yes, yes. But it is the weekend. We're excited for it. Hope that you have a great weekend planned at it. Right, oh, you know what we have this weekend? I can't believe I forgot this important thing. My husband's running a triathlon this weekend. Oh, this is triathlon Olympic weekend. triathlon weekend. So we're not doing movies and cake. We're headed out of town. Where is this happening? Mish, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. What are you Somewhere saying? on the border of Michigan and Wisconsin. I, I don't know what you were saying <laughs> Michiganson. I, I don't know is the answer that I'm trying not to say. I should know where my husband's triathlon is. You know where, you know that Mich- Michigan and Wisconsin don't touch each other anywhere. Okay, then it's not there. <laughs> they, there's a lake between us that you might have heard of. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, on a, it's somewhere. We're going somewhere, Brian. And it's going to be great. I'm going to cheer him on. How does one watch a... Uh, triathlon. I will tell you on Monday. So you don't know. No, this is his first triathlon. He's done marathons, but never triathlons. So I will. Um, kids go to this. Uh, the kids are not going to this one, but Kevin is doing a half Ironman in a few weeks and the kids are going to come to that one. 
much time does your husband have on his hands? Well, you know, that's what I keep saying. I'm like, hey, are you ready to be a pastor again? Or are you just a professional <laughs> marathoner you, now? Would you like to do a radio show? <laughs> well, that sounds like fun. Yeah. I am doing a lot of things this weekend. Triathlon is not one of them. Uh, not even any running, any biking. Yeah. I, if, I, if I'm swimming, I have fallen into a pool. So it is not <laughs> happening this week. Well, I hope you guys have a good time. That'll Thank be you. fun. Thanks. Okay. So we talk a lot about social media on here. And I found this Twitter thread uh, from a guy by the name of Robert Reeve. He's a privacy tech worker and he had a fascinating experience. And so I wanted to read this because every now and then I read things like this and I'm blown away and terrified. So I go, oh, I have a radio show. Let's scare some people. <laughs> Because I think it does remind us that there's more going on out there than we think. So so let me read the entire thread here. Just stay with me because it's story-based, and then we'll respond to it. He says, I'm back from a week at my mom's house, and now I'm getting ads for her toothpaste brand, the brand I've been putting in my mouth for a week. We never talked about this brand or Googled it or anything like that. As a privacy tech worker, let me explain why this is happening. First of all, your social media apps are not listening to you. This is a conspiracy theory. It's been debunked over and over again. But frankly, they don't need to because everything else you give them unthinkingly is way cheaper and way more powerful. Your apps collect a ton of data from your phone, your unique device ID, your location, your uh, your demographics. We know this. That's a funny word he wrote there. Data aggregators pay to pull in data from everywhere. When I use my discount card at the grocery store, every purchase, that's a data set that's for sale. They can match my Harris uh, Teeter purchases to my Twitter account because I gave both these companies my email addresses and phone number, and I agreed to all the data sharing. Oh, wait, I just lost it. I agreed to all of the data sharing. Uh, And when I accepted those terms of service and the private uh, privacy policy, Here's where it gets truly nuts, though. If my phone is regularly in the same GPS location as another phone, they take note of that. They start reconstructing the web of people I'm in regular contact with. The advertisers can cross-reference my interests and browsing history and purchase history to those around me. It starts showing me different ads based on the people around me, friends, family, co-workers it will serve me ads for things i don't even want but it knows someone i'm in regular contact with that might want it to subliminally get me to start a conversation about i don't know toothpaste it never <laughs> needed to listen to me for this it's just comparing aggregated metadata it says the other thing is this is just out there in the open. Tons of people report on this, basically saying everybody knows this is what's happening. Okay. So he goes home. He uses his mom's toothpaste, never talks about it, never Googles it, begins getting ads for the toothpaste. Unbelievable. And I read these to just freak us out, but also remind <laughs> right. us that remember what they said in the social pro- uh, dilemma. If you don't know the product, you're the product. Yes. They're trying. That's what social media is. They are yes. trying to sell to you. And when we're clicking things about privacy or share my location, share my, even when we're not clicking on it, understand that, that, that Facebook, Twitter, it's not a neutral yeah. playing field where it's just, oh, I'm just looking at birthdays and kittens and whatever else right. I'm looking, I'm being sold product. Well, and you're being consumed as you are consuming content. Isn't this story crazy though? It's crazy. So interestingly, over the weekend, last weekend, we went to, uh, we stopped by a Cracker Barrel. 
to put our names on the waiting list. Okay, I love the Cracker Barrel, but that's ah, not part of the story. That's a whole other conversation mm-hmm. we have to have because I love Cracker Barrel too. Uh, put our names on the waiting list. Uh, it ended up being an hour wait, so we didn't go. I am now getting all kinds of Cracker Barrel ads. Nice. And it is hard to know, okay, was it because I gave them my phone number when we, or is it just because I walked into the Cracker Barrel? But like my Instagram feed is filled with Cracker Barrel ads. <laughs> and it's another story where you're like, Ah, it feels so freaky. I do think it's helpful to demystify it. Like, no, mm-hmm. this is what happens when you take your phone somewhere, when you buy something somewhere, when you search. Like, this will happen. Let's demystify it. But then also let's be aware of, like you said, Brian, they're after us because they want our money That's and they exactly want right. our passion and they want our heart and they want our following. You are the product. He, yeah. he closes this by saying this. So... They know my mom's toothpaste. They know I'm at my mom's. They know my Twitter. Now I get Twitter ads for my mom's toothpaste. Wow. Your data isn't just about you. It's about how it can be used against every person you know and people you don't even know to shape behavior unconsciously. Like, wow. In some ways, this is funny. Mom's toothpaste is yeah, that. Yeah, but in yeah. other ways, it's terrifying. Totally. Because, And I think you make a great point. We just have to know this. Yeah. Because we're not spending less time on social media. We're spending more. They're not getting dumber. They're getting smarter. Smarter. And you have to know that, whereas we used to watch commercials on TV, which we still do, the way they're getting you is by these pop-up ads and things that just seem to randomly, the Cracker Barrel, that seems to randomly show up on 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 your Twitter feed or your Facebook page. And that's how they get you. So what's the takeaway, though? What do we do? Is just is it just to know? And therefore, right. knowledge is power, and we can kind of work our way through this. Because I'm not sure we're going to become Amish and just right. get rid of everything. Right. So what's the takeaway here? I think the takeaway is to walk by your phone or your Alexa and be like, I need a million dollars. Give me a beach house or a free vacation. That's what I try to do. Just, I'm going to use it in my favor. If it's gonna... No, I don't. I I. Don't know, but what we talk about on the show a lot is just being wise with your social media, limiting your usage, being mindful of what is happening, mm-hmm. and remember that there is a bigger picture of what's happening. Like you said earlier, Brian, it's not just you watching cute kitten videos. Something is happening on a meta scale, right. and so let's just not be naive as followers of Jesus and um, I, I feel like that's the power right there, knowing what's happening and then making choices mindfully because of it. That's well put. I'm going to start Googling today, where can I find free cash? And <laughs> there just you see go. what uh, coming up. Beach free beach vacation. You know what you'd start getting? You'd start getting like Bitcoin advertisements. That's probably and accurate, all of that stuff. right? So enjoy your crack. Now we said Cracker Barrel. It's just going to start showing up on my stuff now. Well, too. I do like Cracker Barrel. Maybe we'll get coupons. I love their stew. Oh, Cracker Barrel Stew is, yes, one of my first dates I remember with my future wife, my wife of, well, she's not my future wife from <laughs> now. Say, she's my Start current that over, wife, Brian. There but at you the go. time of the date, she was my future okay, wife. Okay. Cracker Barrel in Naperville. I remember us sitting there for a while Aww. and just enjoying that little game where you have to jump the things. Yeah, the little... And- the little- TikTok tick, so game, what is it called? The little golf tee. Golf tee. We'll call it the little TikTok game is what it is. So glad that you're joining us today. The hilarity ensues here on a Friday. <laughs> Coming up next, what do we do when we don't care enough to care? When we're just worn out, when we're tired of caring for people? Another way to put it is compassion fatigue. What happens when we have compassion fatigue? Going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
Coming up this hour, what is compassion fatigue and what happens when you feel fatigued helping people? And then we're joined by Karen Swallow Pryor. You are listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us here on the last hour of our week of a show. It's Friday. Hopefully, you're looking forward to a great weekend. Aubrey, you and I, as we say, we're both pastors, but this isn't even something just for pastors, I think. we're I think we're learning... What are the things that are going to be hard coming out of COVID? Mm. So uh, for some people, coming back just into community and yeah. uh, coming back in and and being around people mm-hmm. is going to be difficult. We've had that conversation. For some, being kind to people who don't think the way they do is going to be difficult. What? Definitely. You're still wearing a mask. Yeah. What are you doing? Or yeah. what? You know, that kind of thing is going to be difficult. Uh, but here's an interesting article that was up at Christianity Today. It has to do with something called compassion fatigue. This was written by Daniel Harrell. Uh, Daniel is the uh, editor and editor in chief at Christianity Today. He's been a pastor for many years as well. The article is titled "This: When We Don't Care Enough to Compare to Care." When we don't care enough to care, as we love and comfort others, the comforter gives strength for our weariness and our wariness. So it's this idea here that over the last year, so many people have been hurting. So many people have been struggling that sometimes it's just really hard to care anymore. Right. I resonate with this. Yeah. Sometimes as a pastor, but also just a person, just a person, there are times I'm like, I don't want to care about their struggle. Yeah. Am I allowed to say this? No one's listening to this. Sometimes even about family members, distant family, you know, kind of that circle friends. It's, this isn't just about that hard person in your church who's constantly kind of asking you for something uh, that's part of this. But even people close to you where you're like, you know what? I've got all I can to handle right now. I'm just tired. I just want to get back into life. Like, do you feel this sometimes? Just I don't feel like I I feel this more than I want to admit. Like, I just feel like I look, I am giving what I can. I am emotionally drained. I don't also have time or maybe time is not the right word energy yes it's an energy to to care (laughs) or you know i feel a little bit numb and then of course i feel terrible about that because that doesn't feel like the heart of god that doesn't feel like intentional shepherding it just feels like laziness but the reality is is there is truth to this idea of compassion fatigue one of the things he says in the article is this that I, this really stuck with me? While pastoral care can coax out the Messiah complex in us, it can also create irritation. Pastoral care often comes as a disruption. The phone predictably dings in those moments when we feel least available with sermons to prepare, Bible studies to lead, staff to coach, programs to organize, and emails to answer. Must I stop all that I need to do to go to the hospital and pray? Can I not intercede from my desk? (laughs) And then he puts in parentheses, I feel guilty even typing this. But I think it's a very honest word. Yes, yes. And we all feel that at times. Like as a pastor... It is true. Those calls come at the weirdest times. And those, uh, those, hey, Pastor, could I, and there's, he talks in here about the need for boundaries. So just because somebody asks to meet with you doesn't mean you have to meet yeah, with them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, just because somebody wants to have a phone call with you at this moment, you can say, hey, can we talk tomorrow or later today? I've got more time. Uh, and so there is something to be said about, like, I need, I need to care. I need to have some boundaries. Yeah. Otherwise, it will be, 
But there is something to being a pastor about going to the hospital yep. and praying with those persons yep. or visiting that person yep. and having coffee or meeting uh, with the yeah. person who's going, hey, I'm just struggling in life. Mm-hmm. And and I think the weird part is I think most of us pastors got into being pastors because of that. Like, Absolutely. We wanted to. We didn't. I didn't go. I want to be a pastor because I want to preach every week. Right. Or I want to do. It's fun. Right. But it was, I, I, I'm about people. I want to be I with people. I want to shepherd. I want to do this. Yeah. But man, can it be tiring yeah. at times. And so, uh, and especially when you're, you're, you're running on an empty tank yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be the key, a little bit of what he talks about here. When you're empty, it's really hard to, to serve others and shepherd others out of that emptiness. And a lot of us are coming out of COVID feeling empty. Right. And so when my kids ask for something, I'm like, oh, another yes. thing. When you know, when the brand of person at the church is like, can I talk to you about something? I'm like, who's going to talk to me? Like, when right. do I get to talk <laughs> right. to somebody? <laughs> right. It's so true. And, and don't you think, therefore, the answer does become, uh, you've got to do some self-care here. Yeah. Uh, if you're feeling this sort of fatigue and, and go, what's going to fill me up so that I can pour myself out for others? That's what I, that's what ultimately I feel like has to be the answer is that, is that you can't pour out of what's empty. And so you do have to find those things that fill up your soul and feel life-giving so that you have that full tank to pour out to other people and then refill yourself. And I mean, I think that's different for everyone. That might be like a hike in the woods. That might be daily quiet time. That might be a retreat. That might be time with your really, really close friends, a concert, a game. I don't know what it is, but having that be a consistent part of your life. And then the other thing is, I, I just think for myself, I tend to schedule every moment of my day. Like mm-hmm. I like I'm you know before the show I'm taking my kids to school, then from there I'm coming home and I'm exercising and then from there I'm doing XYZ and just like every moment okay I'm I have to have this one phone call on the way to the next place and then that's right. and so I do think that's my own fault but we also have to have margin. So when people yes. call us, we're not like so overwhelmed with our schedule that we can't actually be with them. It's almost like you have to just create blank space in your day that the Lord can fill up with the people you need to care for. That's something I need to work on anyway. But it's hard. I mean, this isn't uh, to to complain or to, it's not just about our lives, but you and I have two very time consuming jobs and we're parents and we're, and so it is a juggling act. And Mm -hmm. we've been doing this show for two years. I have been, uh, there are many times where I just feel empty and you're just like, and I don't mean that as in like, I just mean like literally emotionally (laughs) empty. Like, Oh, I'm tired. Tired might be a better word. Yeah. And that's a really hard way to not just pastor, but to parent, mm-hmm. to to be a husband, mm-hmm. to be whatever. And so I think margin becomes really important. Boundaries become really important. Recharging your soul becomes really important. And this fatigue becomes more of a warning sign, like on your car. It's, it's more of a warning sign going, hey, something's wrong. It's not like, okay, I just got to power. Th-. Sometimes yeah. you have to power through yeah. it, but that's not always the answer. Daniel Harrell goes on to say, as pastoral caregivers, we do so as sinners in need of the same grace. Mm. We are not the Lord, but we have access to his spirit, the ultimate comforter who will help and be with us forever. I think that's good. Let's be really biblical about this. Are you and I as pastors or pastors out there or just random Christ follower out there? One of the questions becomes, am I connected to the vine? That's what I was thinking. Are are we abiding? Yes. Yeah. A great and, question. and we can make a lot of excuses for not abiding. Mm-hmm. I'm busy. I got multiple jobs. I got to do this. I got to do that. And it can take away. So compassion fatigue, fatigue. What happens when you don't care enough to care? 
I think that's going to be a really big topic here as we kind of come out yeah. of uh, out of COVID. Well, we're thrilled to be joined next by friend of the show, Karen Swallow Pryor. She writes uh, about a ton of stuff. We've brought her on to talk about her recent column at the Religion News Service that says the evangelical sexual abuse crisis is the spiritual warfare of our time. We're going to ask her to explain that and have that conversation and many other things with Karen Swallow Pryor next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey, I'm thrilled that we're joined again by a what I like to call a friend of the show. Uh, somebody who's been <laughs> on multiple times. Now, that is Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, author of many books, uh, writes a regular column that we're going to discuss at the Religion uh, News Service. So, Karen, it's so great to see you again. How are you doing? It's great to be with you. I'm doing well. Before we jump into especially your most recent article, why don't you introduce yourself, especially for those people who've never heard you on here before? Yeah, well, um, again, I am primarily a professor of English and have been so for a couple of decades. So reading and writing about literature is my jam. I do that in, in books and articles and on Twitter. Um, I also um, am evangelical and I'm a Southern Baptist. And uh, so there's always a lot of drama <laughs> around <laughs> these days, I guess. So I write about those things. Um, you know, I just, I love, I love um, the church. I love culture. I love literature. And um, those are the things I like to, to talk about. That's great. Karen, we're so grateful that you're here with us today. So you um, wrote an article, I guess it was last month, the evangelical sexual abuse crisis is the spiritual warfare of our time. And what is interesting about this particular article is you're reflecting back on three years since your big accident, which some of our listeners may not know about. So if you're okay, I'm going to go kind of deep and vulnerable quickly. Can you talk to us about the accident? And then we'll go into the article from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so just almost exactly three years ago on uh, May 23rd, 2018, I was in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, to attend a conference, ironically, um, on it was a small private kind of gathering, but the topic was um, women and the church. Mm. <laughs> and mm. uh, I was in town to attend that conference and uh, had scheduled in a quick meeting at Lifeway, my publisher beforehand, and was walking uh, to the meeting, got lost, and on my trying to find my way back to my hotel to get my bearings, um, I got hit by a bus and mm. ended up oh. in Vanderbilt Hospital for eight days with uh, many broken bones and um, collapsed lungs. And uh, yeah. I remember that story and it just, wow, you know, so, so many people talking about what will stay personal. What did that do to you personally? Like what is the, the reco- what was the recovery like, but also mentally, just psychologically, how did that change you? Yeah, um, I mean, the recovery was several months long. I couldn't um, walk when I got home because of my um, fractured pelvis. I had to have surgery and have a gigantic pin holding me together in the middle. Um, And I'd never, you know, I'd never really had any kind of accident or injury. So it was uh, quite, quite an ordeal um, to be bedridden or wheelchair 
ridden for a few months. Um, and you know, it was really great that I didn't have to go into a rehabilitation center. I went mm -hmm. from the hospital home. Um, and, uh, that was kind of miraculous in itself. And it just, um, yeah, I don't even know how to explain how, what it did to me. Um, other than, um, the thing that I took most from it is what I wrote about in this, in this article is that, um, I just understand trauma in a way that I did not before. And I thought of myself as a pretty empathetic, understanding person. <laughs> um, but it's just physical, bodily, along with emotional and spiritual yeah. and psychological trauma is just something that's a, that unless you've experienced it, it's just hard to understand how it works. Yeah. Um, Karen, so sorry, by the way, for your accident. So sorry for this journey that you have been through, although I'm guessing God has shown up in it in powerful mm -hmm. ways. But um, you made this connection between your trauma and the trauma of sexual abuse victims. And I would love to hear more about that. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it's 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 strange because in my mind, um, this accident is really connected with that. And I think you know, that's also partly how trauma works is that that the site of trauma ends up being connected to the things that surround it. And in the midst of that, you know, I was attending uh, this conference that was growing out of um, the way that abuse cases have been handled in the church. And I was, you know, we, I had just seen a number of abuse cases emerge within my own denomination and my own circles um, and news about another abuse case had come out that, that more the very morning um, mm -hmm. I was doing interviews that morning before uh, from the hotel um, about these new developments. And so um, that's, that was my world for the weeks leading up to, and then following the accident was just um, dealing with, with these abuse cases, not as a victim, but as an advocate and as an ally, as someone within the communities that these were affecting. And so, um, so they're, they'll be forever be connected to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the thing that, um, that I, that I understood is just because so many of the um, survivors of abuse are told um, by well-meaning others, you know, to just move on or to forgive mm -hmm. or forget or, you know, get over it. Um, but healing doesn't work that way. And trauma, yeah. you know, is, is something that really, can become outside of our control. It's something very bodily and visceral. Um, and that, you know, I learned that even though mine wasn't a, a sexual trauma, um, I mean, imagine me, imagine being a runner as I am. I'm not good, but imagine being <laughs> a runner and finally getting back to running and imagine like running down the road and imagining every single car that passes by you hitting uh, you, mm. um, which is what happened to me for a long time. I mean, it's less now, but like, I just can't, help but imagine yeah. every single one hitting me and there are a lot out there yeah yeah so in your article i, I love this line that you said because you you talk about this being spiritual warfare the sexual mm -hmm. abuse scandals being spiritual warfare and you reference i had this exact thought when i think of spiritual warfare i think of frank peretti's books the spiritual darkness <laughs> like those kind of books uh from my childhood as well and when you said you couldn't get past the first five pages same as me right there same <laughs> um, so can you help people understand what you mean and how this, because they might be going spiritual warfare. That, that seems like an overstatement or that doesn't seem right. Help people understand that better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, for, for me, um, there was just a bizarre 
part of that accident um, where I, you know, I, and I, we don't know what's, you know, we, we do know that there is, there are spirits around us and there are angels around us. And, right. um, and, you know, so there was just a, a sense that God um, both allowed this accident to happen and also preserved my life. Mm. It was mm. both, both things. Um, and what I know about sexual abuse from, you know, working with um, survivors and, and, and institutions that have handled it well or not handled it well is um, it's, it's just like, it just seems like it is being, it is the thing that's being used to tear apart the church. Mm. And what I see in it is it's of course, sexual abuse and violence is, evil and wrong but the rest a lot of the other things around it are very gray um like it's very hard to know what the right thing to do how to what the best response is how do we deal with the victims how do we deal with the perpetrators how we how do we deal with the people who who might be on the periphery those are really really hard questions they Mm -hmm. aren't just you know, they're, they're very complicated and we have to work through them carefully and responsibly. But instead, what we're seeing is, you know, tribalization and polarization um, and not working through or or being able to admit when we've done something wrong. And I don't mean the sexual abuse, but I mean, I, when we when we can't admit I had to I ha- in the hospital. This didn't make the article. It made a draft <laughs> while I was in the hospital. I was contacted by advocates of an abuse survivor because Mm. they wanted me to speak out about that person. Mm. Hmm. And I didn't believe what they told me. Mm. And I go back through my emails and I'm like, of course I I was on drugs and I told them I'm in the hospital on drugs. I don't know what I'm saying, (laughs) but I, but now I know that story well and I know the Mm. victim well, and Mm. I know that the story, her story is true. And so I've had to go to her and say, I want to tell you that I did not believe the story when it was brought to me. So we all have to do, I mean, we have to, but instead what's happening is that I think the enemy is using this instead to blind and deceive and um, destroy us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Again, Karen Swallow Pryor, besides being a friend of the show, is a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Also the author most recently of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. And we're talking to her uh, about her article uh, at Religion News, uh, The Evangelical Sexual Abuse Crisis is the Spiritual Warfare of Our Time. Uh, you wrote this article before, obviously, everything happened this week with Russell Moore and that leaked letter and all that's happened. And you're uh, very outspoken uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Like, that's your tribe. Those are your people. And so uh, rather than ask, I just want to know your thoughts on it. Uh, Aubrey and I talked about it in a show the, yesterday, I believe, and, and just kind of your thoughts and your reflections, because much of that leaked letter had to do with sexual abuse and how it was handled through the years. And so uh, my guess is that was a hard letter for you to read, maybe not surprising, but just what's your reaction to it? Yeah, it really is heartbreaking. I mean, of course, I don't know anyone anywhere, including in the Southern Baptist Convention, who um, who would uh, support sexual abuse or, or cover right. up. Again, I think it comes back to what I mentioned on the last half is that 
it's not always clear how we should respond and what we might have competing interests and, and, and in, in, I mean, these situations are so complicated. And so it's makes sense that we would disagree on how to respond and how to handle it as a, you know, convention of churches and so forth. Um, And that's why I'm convinced that, that, you know, the, the enemy, the, the spirits for, um, evil rather than good are using this to divide and fracture us. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, it's, I'm a, I'm a Christian who believes, um, in human dignity because we are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Bible says that we are made male and female and the Bible teaches us about what sex is for sex is a, and, and marriage are a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church and sex is the way in which we create with God new image bearers Mm -hmm. and so to abuse that to abuse that at any part of it to that's why I think sex abuse is like is Mm. one of the things that is most evil is an attack on God himself because it attacks us in who and how he made us and what the purpose of sex is and so it's very heartbreaking, but also, I guess, in a way, not surprising that this mm. is where the enemy, what the enemy would use to divide and try to destroy the church, which, you know, we know he won't do. And we have to rest in that and believe mm. that. Um, but we still right. have a lot of work to do. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, Karen, and I know you're primarily an English professor, so it's, I, you know, I hate kind of putting English you is a lot about the church. <laughs> it's a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more fun, right? You don't have to lead a church. Um, but, you know, from your perspective, what do you think the church can do better? Like you just said, we have a lot more work to do. What is some of that good work we can begin mm-hmm. wrapping our, our hands around and our souls around related to sexual abuse? Well, I think the first thing that we can do is uh, is is really claim uh, the exhortation uh, in the Bible that says um, that that the world will know us by our love one for another. Mm. We're so far from that. The world is not knowing us by our love for one another. We aren't knowing us by our love one for another. So we have to start there. We have to start in loving one another, even through our disagreements. Mm. I think, and I think the rest would fall into place if we could only listen charitably, interpret one another charitably. Um, But instead, I think that if we aren't doing that, then something else is at play, whether it's power or cover up or lack of accountability. Um, The more that I see and the more that I've experienced in my own previous institution, um, I mean, people can make, we can make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes, but it's really how we respond to the mistakes that we make that I think shows what's really going on that's great one thing we'd love to do i love to do karen is just to read people that we have on their twitter accounts and just say hey what why'd you why'd you write this like what was going on in your soul this is just from yesterday you just wrote a very simple tweet it just said the kingdom of god is at hand you just wrote the kingdom of god is at hand a i'd like to know why'd you write that like where did that come from and b why is that so important for people Mm -hmm. to grasp well, I've spent the past, well, it's been, you know, three years and then days and weeks and months. But the last couple of days specifically, I have been immersed in the world of um, sexual abuse and cover up at an institutional level. There have been some some news reports and podcasts 
detailing a great deal of that at my um, previous institution. So I, I was just sitting in a lot of new revelations yesterday mm. and it's so easy to feel discouraged yeah. and down and heavy. Yeah. And I was, yeah. but then I realized, you know, I keep telling myself the fact that God is revealing these things and he's going to bring accountability. And if not sooner than later, but it feels like sooner, I rejoice in that. I would tremble if I were anyone who was involved in in covering up or or making an error that needs to be repented of and failing to do that. And so I just feel this sense. Again, it's always true um, (laughs) because all the way back to uh, John the Baptist telling us it's true in Holy Scripture. But I just had this sense yesterday that the kingdom of God is at hand in all of this, in these revelations. Mm. Amen. I mean, that's such an encouraging perspective to step back and yeah. go, okay, Jesus is on the throne. The kingdom of God <laughs> is mm-hmm. here and continuing to come. And, and we can rest in that when we feel really heavy. Mm-hmm. Karen, I'm just thinking, you know, for some of our listeners who maybe are victims of trauma, whether it's sexual abuse or a horrific accident or something else, um, would you just give them some type of encouraging word? How would you encourage those listeners? I would, the sort of philosophical point that I would make um, is that in God's economy, time is redemptive. Mm. Now, that's not to say, you know, the old cliche, time heals all wounds, because that's, you know, that may be true or not be true. But time, the, the arc of time is moving toward justice and redemption. Amen. Um, and to just take comfort in that, and if justice and healing completely doesn't take place in this life it will take place later but for some for many it will take place in this life i have seen i have seen um so many stories of redemption and forgiveness and hope again with all of these revelations as hard as they are the revelations themselves are a great mercy Because for years, these things have been going on in some cases, and we have not known. And now we know. And how much better to see and know rather than to be blinded and deluded. So that itself is a mercy. And if you are not finding healing or hope or support where you are, keep looking. It's out there. Um, And this is one of the blessings, I think, of social media. There are a lot of curses with it, but one is that people are able to find one another and find support. Um, So just keep going until you find it. That's great. Again, Karen Swallow Pryor, a good friend of the show. She is research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Also, go pick up her book, uh, multiple books, but pick up On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life, through great books. You can read her at the Religion News Service. Uh, also find her at karenswallowprior.com. And last place is on Twitter. Karen is a great follow. I would encourage you to follow her at KS Pryor. That's at KS Pryor. Karen, thank you so much. We love having you on the show. We'll yeah, do it thanks, again. Thanks Karen. for taking the time today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us as we launch into the weekend. That's right. Here we go. Excited for a little bit of time off and time with your family. Hopefully, 
you're also going to spend some time with your church family on Sunday. Uh, most churches are kind of reopening, but mm-hmm. some of them are still virtual. But however it is that you can connect with your church family, we encourage you to do so. All right. It's commencement time of year. Yes. Uh, schools are ending. Graduations are happening. And with graduations come commencement speeches, especially at college graduations. Uh, and as we've been saying over the last couple of weeks, it's fun to kind of dive into commencement addresses. And you found two. Uh, that you wanted us to listen to. Each of these are going to be about a minute. The first one's John Legend, uh, probably the best male singer there is out there. I mean, I agree. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic singer. John Legend. He did the commencement uh, address earlier this month at Duke University. And so it's a, it's a kind of long, so you can go back and listen to the whole thing. Uh, but we're going to listen to about a minute of what John Legend had to say at the commencement at Duke University. Seriously. This is a special milestone for all of you. And if you don't feel it yet, that's okay. When I was prepping for my own graduation way back in 1999, were you guys alive then? Barely, barely. I remember feeling pretty indifferent. Back then I was too cool to care about this silly ceremony. I'd already done the work, I'd already made the friends, I'd turned in my papers and passed my tests. What was the point of all this pomp and circumstance? But during the actual ceremony, I realized that being together is the point. Being joyous is the point. Celebrating is the point. We have so few moments to enjoy these rites of passage, to just revel in our accomplishments with the people we love. Today is one of those moments. And of course, after a year when we could barely gather it all, it takes on a special meaning. All right, Aubrey says, seriously, this is a special milestone for all of you. It takes on a special meaning, kind of talking about what they've been mm-hmm. through. Uh, but what stood out to you about what John Legend yeah. had to say to well, the Duke students? What we didn't air was John Legend singing, good morning, Duke, in his John Legend way. And it was pretty awesome. fantastic. So How did it sound? <laughs> Just exactly like I just said. (laughs) What I love about what John Legend says is that in this year and a half, we haven't had a lot of moments just to stop and celebrate. Mm. And what he's saying is that when he was a student at Duke, he almost took commencement sort of flippantly, like, yeah, "Yeah, whatever. I got my friends. I'm done. I don't care that much. But how important it is in this day and age to stop and have a rite of passage and celebrate that rite of passage after the year that we've been through. Um, that it kind of takes on a whole new meeting. And I, that was just, I think, a good word for all of us. To, yeah. to we've been through something really awful. Let's uh, celebrate these new, I don't new beginnings, new summer starting, movies opening, uh, games opening again. Like, these are important things to celebrate. That's right. I didn't, I was unaware that John Legend attended Duke. Yeah, he's a Duke's his alma mater. Pretty cool, right? I was unaware. That is good. That is good. All right. So that's a good one. That other one that you found for us, Bob Iger. Uh, if that name, uh, if you're having trouble placing it, he's the executive chairman and the chairman of the board at Disney. So Bob Iger oversees Disney. Underneath Disney comes ABC, ESPN. Like he's got yeah. a lot on his plate. Yeah. Uh, and he was at UT Texas or yeah, Tennessee, Texas. all right, yeah. University of Texas. His he's got a a child that attends there. All right, so he's yeah. writing checks to the University of Texas. That's right. So they invited him to do the commencement address. Uh, so let's listen to what Bob Iger had to say. Today is and will always be one of those significant days in your life. 
and in many ways it's an ending, but it's also a beginning, which is probably a bit overwhelming, at least for some of you. There is no doubt this is an extraordinary, somewhat unsettling time to be a young person starting out. There are tough challenges on the global and the community level, and there are no easy answers. But it is an exciting time, too, because our world is changing at a faster pace than many thought was possible. A lot has been disrupted, but so much has been created. There are new industries, there are new businesses, there are new and different jobs, and even exciting new places to find those jobs, like right here in Austin, Texas. In fact, we are immersed in invention and innovation. All right, so not surprisingly, Bob Iger talks a lot about innovation and invention, kind of painting a picture for these students that you can kind of do new things, mm-hmm. that there's this new horizon. That's really good to hear at that age, don't you think? Yeah, I thought that this was a unique commencement speech because a lot of the ones we've played on the show or listened to have kind of, you know, talked about, as John Legend did, the the milestone, the value, the importance of the hardship that this class has been through. But he's talking about, like, let's look to the future now. Never before has there been so much innovation and invention, and you're a part of that, and let's keep going. And he really moved this class forward yeah. to think uh, creatively, and I thought that was also a good word for us, that though we do need to celebrate and mark this awful thing we've been through, It is there comes a time and place when we move forward. And we think about like what new things can come from now on. That's right. And this is somebody, like we said, who is in the innovation and <laughs> invention is. world. That's, right. like, that's what he does. And he's trying to paint a hopeful picture for these graduates going, hey, you guys are the next generation. You guys can create. You can you can bust out of the mold. Like I think of how it was for our parents versus our generation and life looked very different. Yeah. And now think about how different it can and will look. For college graduates now from when you and I graduated, mm-hmm. you know, what was it, 10 years ago? Five, five years yes, ago. Yep. Yes, by 20 whatever. I graduated 99. <laughs> five times four. <laughs> yours, is, yours is easy graduating in 2000. Yeah, very easy. Like I have the hard work of going, okay, now I have to add one because it was 99. So, uh, yeah, you know, painting a picture for them of you can do anything, you know, not anything you put your mind to, but you can break the mold. That's it. Like yeah. dream. Now is your time yeah. in life to dream, yeah. to be flexible, to go for it. Uh, and I think that is that is just a good word. Okay, closing this way, you and I are both Wheaton College grads. Yeah. Which one of us would you, if you had to bet money, which one of us is the first one to be invited to do a commencement, a commencement at Wheaton College? Oh, it's me all day long. That's not even a question. I get picked before you do. I really wish I could argue with that. <laughs> But there is the odds are really high that yeah, that's you and yeah. not me. I probably won't ever get picked. I mean, let's say that. But between the two of us, if they're like scraping the bottom of the barrel, this you're is, at more of the bottom of the barrel than I am. It's a really hurtful way to end the year and <laughs> the, 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 the weekend. And we're available. This you can is, call us now, Wheaton College. Hey, Aubrey Sampson wants to give your commencement address when she tells you you're not you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, but you're not all the you're way You're not at all the, the way down because that would be Brian. <laughs> Who spoke at your commencement speech? Do you remember that? 
It was the provost of Notre Dame. Ooh. Who used to be, I mean, I think it was Nathan Hatch. I remember okay. him being really good. I remember that being nice. good. Yours was probably big because you were class of 2000. I think it was John Piper. I, I might be remembering wrong, to be honest, but I'm pretty sure it was Piper. I love that John Piper spoke at your commencement. Right. I'm mine of all people, right? <laughs> That's a conversation for another I time. I do love I that. Might, I need to double check that, though. He spoke at something I was at one time. <laughs> one time. Well, you, uh, I look forward to you speaking Thank you. someday. I look forward to that as well. And me being there just going, somebody please let me. I'll do an introduction. I will, No, I won't share the stage with you, Brian. I'm sorry. I will do, I will do whatever. So anyway, commencement addresses, uh, I think those are interesting. Always I'm, fun. I'm also, I just Googled commencement of Wheaton College. Oh, that's Wheaton oh. College of Massachusetts. Oh, are you looking at my commencement speaker? It looks like it was somebody by the name of John Walsh. No, that's not right. All right, we're going to figure this out. We're yeah. going to share this with you on Monday because I'm I'm looking. We're going to we're going to we don't have enough we'll things to going on. We're going to go to the archives and we'll find that out. We will find that out. Well, it's been a great week. If you missed any of the shows, go get our podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. We really do hope that you have a great weekend. Join us on Monday from four until six for Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life.